Welcome to Medical Motherhood for March 13th, 2022. I'm Shasta Kearns-Moore. Medical Motherhood is a weekly Substack newsletter and podcast on the experience of raising disabled children. To subscribe and read past issues, go to medicalmotherhood.com. COVID-19 changed so many policies, but I would argue school children have experienced some of the biggest policy impacts children in special education even more so. A few weeks ago, you might remember an allegory I wrote for how it felt trying to regain access to brick-and-mortar school for my twins with disabilities. Uh, If you're new to the podcast, check out the January 23rd episode called Caution, Handle with Care. Since then, we have found a new school home with an online public charter, and the schools are doing well. But it still bothers me that we had to do that, and it bothers me how many disabled kids are still not being served by their own schools. Oregon State Senator Sarah Gelser-Bluen, whom I profiled in a piece that ran in PDX Parent Magazine a few weeks ago, worked hard to pass a bill this year that she hoped would change that. It's not that it didn't pass. The thing didn't even have a chance. Oregon legislative leadership didn't feel that SB 1578A was a high enough priority to work on this session. The bill would have let families skip over lengthy local district complaint processes to appeal directly to a new investigative unit within the Oregon Department of Education. ODE would have then had the power to withhold state school funding if districts weren't allowing special education students equal access to the school. It's frustrating that the legislature didn't take it up and pass it. I think it would have helped a lot of students who are still stuck at home. But I've now experienced a different system and see how it's so much better for my kids. What we really need is a new vision for schools, not just shoving square pegs into round holes. Willamette Week, our local alt-weekly here in Portland, Oregon, asked me to write my thoughts on SB 1578A, so I did. It published March 9th, and the publication has given me permission to read it in its entirety here on the podcast. It's called, For Some Oregon Children, Including Mine, Public Schools Haven't Reopened. Disabled children are still not getting the same access to school that typical children get. That has been illegal in the United States since 1975. Last November, my school board sent an open letter to the community stressing that all students belong. The Westland-Wilsonville School Board's well-intentioned letter aimed at disrupting systems of racism ended with the following. When you walk into our schools, you are honored and welcome just as you are. I read the letter with increasing agitation. Let's set aside the fact that some Westland Wilsonville students, like my son, cannot walk. 
the letter's emphasis on inclusion inside school buildings stood in stark contrast to the many disabled students I knew who were still not back to full-time in-person school. My own twins, who are 11, haven't seen the inside of a classroom in 24 months. Both are on Individual Education Programs, or IEPs, which means the district has been getting double the funding of a typical student for them for two years while providing little in exchange. Before the pandemic, each needed multiple services throughout the six-hour school day, including personal aids. At the time the school board sent their letter of inclusion last fall, we were receiving access to a poorly designed and unsupported online portal and up to 90 minutes per week of virtual chit-chat on weeks their overwhelmed teachers didn't cancel. That's it. Not six hours a day, 30 hours a week of professionally individualized instruction in a warm building with plenty of adults and peers. Just me, at home, with whatever help and energy I could muster. The reason cited by the district? Staffing. It did not have enough support staff to make my twins feel welcome, even though it is legally required to find them. We were not alone. State Senator Sarah Gelser Bluin, a Democrat from Corvallis, says she heard from dozens of parents whose disabled children are still not getting the same access to school that typical children get. That has been illegal in the United States since 1975, when Congress passed the precursor to the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, or IDEA. What we're looking at is a complete rollback to the idea that children are entitled to a free and appropriate public education, Gelser Bluen says. The law is clear. These kids are entitled to school. There is no question that they are breaking the law. Her solution was a bill that would have given the Oregon Department of Education the authority to withhold state school funds if disabled students weren't let back in their school buildings. But Oregon legislative leadership killed the bill in the last week of February. It wasn't the price tag. Gelser-Bluen's proposal would have cost $3.2 million this biennium and $6.6 million the next to create an investigative unit within ODE. By comparison, Oregon received a $30 million windfall this year to shore up special education. And one of the expenditures that did make it on the docket this session was $150 million for summer learning programs. You know, for the kids who can go to school. Senator Gelser Bluen says she believes Senate Bill 1578A simply created too much paperwork for the legislature to work through in this short session. That pales in comparison to the paperwork and the heartache that families will have to go through to get their children with disabilities in education, Gelser Bluen says. She now fears that disabled children will lose four to five years of formal schooling without this measure, as she sees no indication that things will change for them by next fall. Gelser Bluen says she has tallied 70 specific children affected by these practices and estimates the total number affected in our state is far higher, at least hundreds. Perhaps her bill would have helped many of those children get back to school in a matter of weeks, as she says, but I don't believe it would have done so for mine. 
at least not in a way that would be appropriate for their needs. They don't simply need access to a building. They need thoughtful, competent staff with training and resources. The core problem is the way that schools have been designed and the state's long-standing inability to follow through on its promises. Just ask Paul Turdall, a Portland-based management consultant to tech companies and the father of two autistic boys, Turdall has experienced just about every layer of the school complaint process. He is skeptical that SB 1578A would have resulted in huge changes at the classroom level. Turdall says he just hasn't seen the Oregon Department of Education use the enforcement mechanisms already at its disposal. Is ODE actually going to do anything useful if they get this, he wonders? What I have seen tells me, frankly, that they probably won't. So if the state doesn't use its sticks, what about carrots? Turdall says he also hasn't had much luck partnering with schools to advocate for more funding. President Joe Biden did boost special education funding through the American Rescue Plan and his 2022 budget. It hasn't seemed to make a difference. Gelser Bluen's bill would have given ODE authority to intervene, but they have to want to do it, Turdall says. I have not seen that willingness to step up no matter how much money they get. In a letter supporting Gelser Bluen's bill, Oregon Education Chief Colt Gill said his department has partnered with local districts and education service districts to overcome this issue in some places but he acknowledges children are still being denied equal access due to recruitment, training, and other challenges. The legislature may be more inclined to pass Senate Bill 1578 next year during the long session, but Gelser Bluen says that's not soon enough. We have a systemic problem, but we don't fix it systemically, she says. Instead, the onus is put on each family, each child, to suffer, then complain, and fight to get their needs met. That is such an offensive idea that we push families to do that, Gelser Bruin says. In January, at a meeting to develop an on-ramp back into the classroom, the Westland-Wilsonville School District said it couldn't provide what my boys needed due to staffing concerns. I wasn't asking for the full day with full staff that they were entitled to just one hour of an appropriate extracurricular class. I remain skeptical that one bill would fix the problem. I met a lot of school staff over the past seven years, both as a parent and an education reporter. The vast majority have been kind, thoughtful, patient, and caring. They often got into special education because they wanted to do the right thing by kids with disabilities. I've come to the conclusion that they simply can't in our current system, no matter how many letters ODE sends asking for compliance. There aren't enough adults in the building. There aren't enough emotionally stable humans, kids and adults, around. There isn't enough training and experience. There isn't much universally designed curriculum. And, to be sure, there isn't enough fun. That stuff that makes learning easy and school worth going to? I ended up pulling my boys out of traditional school in favor of an online public charter where they are doing well. 
To be honest, anything probably would have been better than the charade we were in. Our meetings had become a farce. None of the interventions needed from staff were possible because they weren't physically present. None of them knew much of anything about my kids or how they learn. They'd barely spent any time with them at all. Medical Motherhood's News Roundup, snippets of news and opinion on disabled children from outlets around the world. From CNN, escaping the horror in Ukraine is not an option for many disabled children and their families. Vova doesn't know that there's a war raging right outside his window. He doesn't understand the meaning of the air raid sirens. He is unaware of the destruction caused by Russian bombs dropping on Kiev. He just wants to build towers from his toy blocks and press the buttons on his mom's phone that make it play songs and cartoons he likes. Vova, a pet name for Vlodimir, is 17 and has Opitz Kavigia syndrome, a rare genetic condition that causes severe intellectual disabilities. He needs round-the-clock care and anti-seizure medication that has become impossible to obtain as Russian troops close in on the Ukrainian capital, according to his mother, Natalia Komarenko. We are unable to get the medicines we desperately need, anticonvulsant drugs levetiracetam and lamotrigine. He has been taking them since he was 10, she told CNN. The European Disability Forum, a pan-European NGO, estimates there are 2.7 million people with disabilities in Ukraine. According to Inclusion Europe, another NGO, there are around 261,000 people in Ukraine with intellectual disabilities that make them extremely vulnerable to the conflict. At least 100,000 of them, mostly children, live in care homes and institutions. Their chances of getting out of the country are slim. The journey out is long and hard, even for families not facing the additional challenge of disability. For those dealing with serious health conditions, it is nearly impossible. From the New York Times, masking helped protect children from the virus last fall, a CDC study suggests. More and more American school districts have dropped mask mandates in recent weeks as coronavirus cases plunged across the United States but they remain a subject of debate among some students and their parents, and a study released on Tuesday by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention suggested that those mandates had helped protect children and teachers from the coronavirus last fall. The study, examining public school districts in Arkansas from August to October as the Delta variant spread, found that districts with full mask requirements had 23% lower rates of the coronavirus among students and staff members than districts without the mandates. The study passes the smell test, Louise Ann McNutt, a former CDC Epidemic Intelligence Service officer and an epidemiologist at the State University of New York at Albany, said of the study. The estimates of the impact of masks are consistent with other studies that show masks have a modest but important reduction of SARS-CoV-2 transmission. From the New York Times, new vaccine findings pose tough questions for parents of young children. 
The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention found that record numbers of children under five had been hospitalized during the Omicron surge, underscoring the need for vaccines for those children. But the agency has since said that 90% of Americans can safely stop wearing masks in public indoor spaces, even in schools with young children. Who could blame parents for feeling bewildered? In the Pfizer trials, adolescents aged 12 to 17 were given 30 micrograms, the same dose given to adults. But children aged 5 to 11 received 10 micrograms, and those six months to five years old received just three micrograms. These doses may have been too low to rouse an adequate and lasting response, but federal officials who have seen the data told the New York Times that higher doses produce too many fevers in children. What to do when you can't administer a dose high enough to shield children against the Omicron variant because of side effects? That's the problem that scientists and federal officials are now wrestling with. Hey, podcast listeners, I know you're probably more auditory people, but if you want an option for reading, I wanted to let you know that Substack has a new app. Access quality writing and avoid doom scrolling by connecting with your favorite writers there. As Substack wrote in their announcement this week, The app helps bring together Substack as an ecosystem, giving you an icon to tap on your home screen that opens up a treasury of quality work by the writers you most trust. It is an app for deep relationships, an alternative to the mindless scrolling and cheap dopamine hits that lie behind other home screen icons. It offers a quiet space to read, where the work itself is given the spotlight and you're not pulled into status games or trivial diversions. You can follow the link on our website or visit substack.com. Medical Motherhood is a weekly newsletter dedicated to the experience of raising disabled children. Get it delivered to your inbox each Sunday morning or give a gift subscription. Subscriptions are free with optional tiers of support. Thank you to our paid subscribers. Follow Medical Motherhood on all the social media platforms and anywhere you get your podcasts. Or visit the Medical Motherhood merchandise store to get a t-shirt or mug proclaiming your status as a medical mama or medical papa. Do you have a question about raising disabled kids that nobody seems to be able to answer? Ask me and it may become a future issue. Thank you for listening. Our music was composed by A. Himitsu and used under a Creative Commons license. Mama all day.